1: everybody and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron-Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Bianca Premo about her wonderful book, The Enlightenment on Trial, Ordinary Litigants and Colonialism in the Spanish Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Welcome, Bianca. We're so excited to have you.
2: Thank you, Lisa. I'm delighted to be talking with you today.
1: Okay, so to our listeners, this is a fantastic book and we're so excited to be having this conversation, Um, but we'll start this interview by asking about what we usually ask and if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to study history and Latin American history in particular.
2: Sure, it's uh, always so interesting because for such a long time um, I was uh, really jealous of people who had Uh, crazy adventure stories or family who were from Latin America or some kind of, you know, kind of tight and uh, neat reason um, for uh, beginning to study Latin American history. But for me, it was really a combination of great teaching and uh, falling in love uh, with the region uh, itself. Of course, Everything always takes place in a political context. And so when I was an undergraduate uh, student, it was the end of a particular kind of era of political activism around Central America. And there was a, a very, almost kind of confusing lull Uh, in the late 80s um, and early, well, uh, late 80s, early 90s, in terms of thinking about what was happening on the left in Latin America. And as someone who'd been attracted to the study of Peru from early on, uh, Sendero Luminoso and questions of indigeneity and who claimed the uh, native past, were uh, very present and very violently present for, um, for Peruvians. So that was kind of the context uh, in which I started studying. And my initial interests were v- super contemporary about the interesting, you know, and sadly continuing definition of what we call terrorism, because at that point there was a lot of talk of narco-terrorism. And if those were really, you know, kind of almost political science-y questions. But when I kept thinking about indigenous history, who gets to claim history, who speaks for the past, I just kept sliding backward into the colonial period.
1: Oh, that's great. So can you tell us maybe um a little bit more? So how you came to write this particular book, how yeah. you got into this fascinating topic that you develop in the Enlightenment on trial? Yeah. And
2: Yeah, I'd love to. And I also think that maybe I want to preface it by saying that my own background, um, I have family members who got PhDs. But um, aside from my very small family, um, my larger family didn't necessarily go to college. I paid my way through undergrad. And I'm just kind of thinking back now. Your question prompted me to think about how, like, the long trajectory, how somebody ends up with a project. And I just wanted to say that I feel like I was very privileged to go to college in a time when there was less um, pressure to produce the kind of usable skills-based knowledge. I know that that sounds crazy and you know, but it was a time when um, being able to follow questions, political questions, questions that had really you know, pressing uh, significance for the world in which we were living. Where there was a kind of more room for creativity in following those questions, um, you know, through time. So I went from being very um, interested in Andean colonial history, early conquest. Then I went to get a master's program, and my mind was opened to thinking about the history of gender and uh, combining it with questions of ethno history, my training there under people like Kevin Gosner and um, Donna Guy. Uh, impacted me when I went to my PhD program. I was committed to colonial Peru, but I started to put those things together and I asked questions about who was a legal minor. And that was originally a very uh, question that was very steeped in ethno history. If indigenous people were considered to be minors before the law, what about their parental rights? So this is kind of a long way of saying. Each set of questions and each set of exposures, sometimes to things I wasn't even looking for, led me in a new direction. And I was not looking in the first book that I wrote, which was called Children of the Father King, to write anything about the Enlightenment. I didn't even really think I understood what the Enlightenment was. But I found all of this dynamism around childhood and legal questions, especially for the second half of the 18th century. And I found more and more civil cases that involved kind of more and more ordinary people or enslaved litigants. And I I noticed that the numbers of cases and also the kind of talk about rights or about education, uh, about natural rights and freedom, it really seemed qualitatively as well as quantitatively different in the second half of the 18th century than in earlier centuries. So when I finished that book, I was left with the question about whether or not this was just confined to legal cases that dealt with children or whether it was a broader phenomenon. And there, you know, the comparative method was the only, uh, you know, was the single answer or the best answer for trying to uh, answer that question. What was happening with all that, that dynamism at law in the second half of the 18th century?
1: And yeah, I, I mean, I think this is probably the main argument of your book, right? Is that um, something was happening and that something was enlightenment. So maybe we can start like the discussion of the book with with enlightenment. And maybe like you do a terrific job in explaining the meaning of the word for different authors, for kind of different schools of thought. I recommend this intro, like the introduction and the book in general for anyone that wants to like understand the concept and also the critiques and kind of want to see different nuances of this debate because it's a still I think an ongoing debate. But maybe you can tell us what it means, what is enlightenment, and how did you situated yourself in a debate that it's has been so heated and so important for like decades right. now
2: yeah it's uh, so the, the problem of enlightenment, and it is indeed a problem, and it, it was during the period when people began to label um, the, what was called the new philosophy or new approaches to life. right? These are uh, this is a concept that lots and lots of philosophers, obviously and uh, policymakers talked about there was a certain amount of temporal self-reference that was going on in the second half of the 18th century. And so at one level, we can talk about what the Enlightenment meant to people at the time and how they called it by its name. But of course, the Enlightenment became somewhat detached from the 18th century over time. And particularly, the way that we think about it is heavily influenced by developments in the uh, post-Second World War period. at the hands of uh, scholars from the Frankfurt School who uh, saw the enlightenment as the uh, foundation of a homogenizing kind of uh, state-led f- process that had seeds of fascism and would lead to the eradication of, or the attempts to eradicate difference in um, the Holocaust. And it also had a life among both post uh, structuralists but also post-colonial scholars who saw it as kind of the unfulfilled promise or trickery of modern imperialism and the modern state. So we get a real package of things when we talk about the Enlightenment. And the way um, Michel Foucault talks about it is that there's an event, which is that original way that folks in the 18th century had an Epical self consciousness. They talked about when they were living and saw it as distinct from other periods in the past. And then there's this ethos, which is this whole idea that we're breaking through history, that then gets uh, taken up as an avatar by critics of modernity, I should say. So when you talk about the Enlightenment, you really you're uh, dredging up uh, uh, something that that has a lot of baggage. And I try in this book to. Ask myself, what happens if we try to look at the way that ordinary people who often did not read or write in Spanish and delegated their legal writing to others, how did they think about living in their moment as different? Or what were the features of the newness of the 18th century to them? And I come up with answers that are intrinsic to colonial Spanish America. In other words, they're, they're not derived by me looking at French historiography and saying, okay, here are the features of the of French, that French historiography tells us should be present in the Enlightenment. Or here are, you know, the, the kinds of thoughts that one must adhere to in a cosmopolitan Republic of Letters let's say, for example, to be kind of theologically committed to tolerance or to have a certain kind of metaphysics. That's something that uh, a scholar like Jonathan Israel would tell us. Those kind of measuring sticks, I try to abandon those and just allow the sources, the uh, lawsuits themselves to tell me how ordinary people and their lawyers and judges were casting the moment as new. And it has very clear parameters. They are historicists, there's new meaning given to natural rights, there's a new way of thinking about what freedom means, and uh, those features uh, all kind of combine to create an enlightenment that is an ordinary enlightenment among Spanish Americans.
1: Yeah, and I think here, you in, in the introduction, you say that calling practices or arguments or referring to them as enlightened can appear to be a case for the enlightenment as a capitulation for traditional narratives of the rise of the West. Yet you say that making such a critique that all enlightenment is Western imposition or imperialism or whatever, that, that assumes two things that you're actually trying to critique. And first is that ideas have origins and owners and then the second one, and that—that that is what I want you to talk a little bit about—is uh, what um, you term here the denial of coevalness, which I—I I don't yes. know if I'm, I'm pronouncing. Um, That's it. okay. So can you tell us what this means? This denial of coevalness? What are you trying to kind of tell us there with this with this concept of this idea of?
2: Right that's a great yeah, question um so that I borrow from um, Walter mignolo mm-hmm. who in fact has adopted it um, himself okay but that that is uh, so and his uh argument about that is that Latin America is staged such that he, he's looking at an earlier period this would be um, in his work on uh, on the darker side of the Renaissance right? And so there are lots of historians uh, and lots of literary scholars, Mignolo included in an earlier version, who uh, remind us of the importance to modernity of uh, contact and the encounter between the so-called new and old worlds themselves. And what uh, is at the basis there is the uh, historicist idea of, of stages of history, that Latin America always is a recipient um, a a laboratory that is acted upon. It's not simply that it's behind, but also that it is not generative of any of the features or experiences of the uh, kind of uh, stages of history that we see as um, the universal stages of history. And in many ways, that's what historicism has meant. It is a reference to uh, world, uh, world history in which uh, the Europe and the so-called West as an imaginary generates all of the stages that, that are the important ones, you know, the uh, Renaissance, industrialization, uh, modernity, um, the nation state. Those things have to kind of take place and everywhere else is in some either deformed version of that or in a lag time. That would be the denial of coevalness. But to assert coevalness is to recognize that these in this interdependent global world, the West is not created without its reference in the other, which can be uh, through the act of colonialism. But there's even more, I think, than just uh, pointing out that the West can't create itself without contact with the other. And that is that I think in this book, I'm making a case for the fact that uh, ordinary people in uh, Spanish America are, in fact, experiencing at the same time and generating at the same moment the same kinds, roughly the same kinds of concepts that are occupying the minds of the great philosophes or enlightenment thinkers that we um, have enshrined in history. So to open our minds and imagine that this could happen and that ordinary people who are not philosophes have an intellectual history and that intellectual history has a bearing on some of these uh, big events uh, and markers in Western history actually is really subversive in in many ways to the not only to the to the kind of Western civ story, but in some ways a little bit subversive to the where we've been in postcolonial studies for maybe the last twenty years.
1: And I, I mean, I agree. I as a student of the history of science and medicine in Latin America, I agree that saying that ordinary people produce enlightened ideas, it's a very powerful idea that certainly hasn't been addressed or hasn't been made enough by scholars. So I this is a terrific like intervention that makes this claim so powerfully and with so many numbers. And this, I, I would <laughs> like to invite uh, our listeners because it's, I think the work you do in counting, in telling us mm-hmm. how many people, you know, how many women, you know, pursued suits against their husbands, how many enslaved people did it against their masters, like how many indigenous people, it's amazing to see the sheer number of cases and how it increased.
2: Yes. And sometimes it's not even just that the numbers are so incredibly large. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is important that we always keep in perspective that it's not, it you know, the going to court was probably, you know, as unfamiliar to ordinary colonial Latin Americans uh, as it is to us, in other words, or just as familiar. I mean, the relative rate of litigiousness or encounters with the law is a really hard thing to measure. But what you see is that the use of law changes over time. So um, I think it's really important To embrace the documentation on its own terms, which is to say a lot of times we in colonial Latin America have lots of legal documentation and not a lot of other stuff. And we've maybe been a little bit um, hesitant to write about the law because we desperately wanted lawsuits or legal writing to provide us a window into the world beyond the law. And I have my thoughts about how effectively it can do that. But at least in the confines of this book, I find it really helpful to think about the law itself as a a place that changes over time, right? In other words, the same people weren't going to court at the beginning of the 18th century as were at the end of the 18th century. And the only way to make that uh, point is to count, (laughs) right? It's really the only way to uh, get a handle on the role of the law in people's lives, and uh, how ordinary people changed the law itself.
1: Yeah, and I think here, this is like one of your other main points, is that you see a shift, though not necessarily complete or straightforward, between what you call a justice-oriented culture to a law-oriented culture, right? So can you explain what what these two concepts are, and how do you see that shift and transformation in the 18th century?
2: Yes, so the justice-oriented culture actually, I believe, still informs uh, Latin American legal culture, uh, you know, very strongly today. And it is, and it was uh, fundamental to the way, just to kind of put it out there, the way liberalism in Latin America looked. So, if we stop imagining that liberalism was imported from somewhere else, but see it rather as a, a, a development within Latin American legal culture. Um it's important to understand what the baseline was, and the baseline for justice oriented culture is um both established by the idea that people were uh, people went to court instrumentally they were not necessarily looking for um, full suits with judgments they looked to judges as one of multiple different kinds of potential mediators on matters of justice. They thought a lot about, they conceived of themselves not as individuals bearing rights, but rather as members of corporate groups. And this is where, uh, you know, Spain's uh, medieval history of fueros or special prerogatives at court really matters, when somebody identified themselves in the court records, it's always very relationally, right? I am, I belong to this town, I'm a natural of such and such a place, I'm married to so-and-so, and and I fall into this kind of protected or special legal category. And so if you kind of take all of that together, the resolution to cases was not necessarily about asserting rights, but rather about tapping in to certain kinds of privileges. And having those privileges give you an advantage that would allow you to win your part of justice at law. The law wasn't applied. It was kind of mediated through the, the judge. The judge could give this person their justice and that person another uh, their justice. How did they do that? Well, they looked to which laws in this huge kind of history of laws uh, that blended Roman, Canon, Spanish law, together with commentators. If you could find some kind of legal um, idea or opinion that supported your position and it could lead to it a uh, kind of distributive outcome, that was great. You didn't necessarily need to court go to court, maybe you did, but you could invoke the law very instrumentally. This changes across the 18th century. It, it, it does not become totally displaced. But a new way of thinking about the law arises, and that is where individuals began to focus on seeing a case all the way through to the end and getting a judgment. It involved having natural rights at law that accrued to an individual that were not necessarily dependent on one's corporate uh, standing though that never totally goes away. But nonetheless, the idea that you would have kind of a natural right to be able to litigate and see a case seen through to the end, that's really very new. And it really relied less on the idea of finding just a a statute in law or a legal commentator to support, but what was the most current and useful ruling. There's a lot more reference to precedent over time, which has a lot of implications for how people were thinking about history and their place in it. So hopefully that's a, uh, you know, hopefully I did an okay job in in summing it up, but those are, you know, the legal uh, law oriented um, argumentation really detaches from tradition in the, in those fundamental ways.
1: Yeah, I know. I think, I think you do like right now, you just made a, a, a great explanation and throughout the book, as a reader you know you get explained over and over again what this difference is and sometimes of course the change is not obvious like sometimes there are like gray areas right. or gray cases and as you said in latin america justice oriented systems still exist but i think throughout the book yes. you you do show the transformation and the nuances and and it's very interesting to see how that changes in specific cases um, that we'll talk later. But now maybe we can talk about the scope, right? Because this is not a yes. book about one place. This is a book, this is, you know, a book about a new Spain, about Peru, about Spain. So can you tell us a little yes. bit about about these regions you choose Cities, you use um rural spaces, indigenous communities, but cosmopolitan cities at the same time. You include Spain right. as a kind of control case to yes. see how things work differently in colonial Latin America. So can you tell us this this like this choice of of cities, villages, of and this like transnational scope you that you like? Yeah. Uh, Yes.
2: First, I want to say that it always gives me pause. It is completely true that that Spain and especially the region of the Montes de Toledo, which is a rural region um, around the city of Toledo, was a control case, but I learned so much about rural Spain and about um, Spanish legal culture that it just—it uh, feels like such a disservice to say that it's no more than a control case. But it is in the sense that there is a social science scaffolding to the book, in which I am kind of careful about choosing, uh, uh, regions that will present, uh, different features so that I can talk about causation. In order to talk about causation, you have to choose, uh, different regions that have different kinds of both similar and different kinds of variables. So how do we know that, um, the enlightenment is spurring more litigation on the part of ordinary people in Spanish America You have to be very careful to not just choose regions that all have the same, for example, demographic profile. If every single place has more and more inhabitants over the course of the 18th century, they're growing at the same rate, it could just be that urban growth or the growth of a population leads to more litigation, right? So those very careful kinds of variables all went into where I chose to study both demographic differences, how many enslaved people, how many indigenous people, what kind of rural people. But one of the big things, as we know, anybody who works with anything that looks like statistics prior to the 19th century, you know, we all have to be really careful because, Uh, what's preserved in the archive may not be everything that there was. And so I, the first thing I had to do was find regions that had excellent archives as transparent as can be holdings, meaning, you know, you know, great people to talk to the archivists were so central to this project for me because I would have these conversations about what, you know, if they knew if there were other civil cases tucked away in the basement somewhere that maybe weren't counted and that kind of thing so uh that was a big part of it of of selecting the regions And the other part of it is places that had great historiographies. Um, Richard Kagan did one of the most foundational studies about lawsuits and litigants in Spain. And he used the archives of the Montes de Toledo. It's really the archives of uh, the municipality of Toledo. But he looked at this region. And so it, he stopped in the 18th century. So I was able to use some of his uh, evidence for earlier centuries to talk about change over time. And this was true, too, of the excellent research that's been conducted on Trujillo in northern um, coastal Peru and in Oaxaca. Um, you know, I followed in the footsteps of so many great historians who've used uh legal records in the past. And that has, that helped me a great deal in being able to make arguments about change over time.
1: Um, Yeah. And uh, I guess before moving on to like the examples you provide in the, in the chapters, I want to ask you and maybe um, so our listeners can have a clear sense of, of your book. Why did you choose civil cases? Because you, you mentioned that, you know, maybe the, the changes can be seen maybe in criminal cases too, or in other jurisdictions, but you focus on civil cases. Can you tell us why you do that and why is it important sure. to, you know, analyze those cases? Absolutely.
2: First of all, I mean, there's lots of interesting work and people have found all kinds of interesting things in civil cases, but civil cases definitely are the less favored child of of, of legal history compared to criminal cases. Criminal cases are just so much more inherently interesting and compelling. And, you know, but there's something really like persuasive about thinking about agency in civil cases. And I've been thinking a lot, there was, I tried not to theorize about about it too much in the book because, you know, it's, monographs can only handle so much theorizing before they start to collapse under their own weight. And there was a lot going on with trying to theorize out the Enlightenment. But I was thinking a lot as I wrote this book and continue to think a lot about what I would call the new archival history, which in colonial Spanish America, so many people are doing such fascinating work in thinking about the archive uh, theoretically. And one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of that work is that it does have a tendency to uh, drift towards criminal cases Mm. or sometimes inquisition cases, which share some uh, characteristics in common in terms of the compelling narratives. And, you know, they're, they're, they, uh, you know, they capture some of society's, uh, you know, craziest behaviors. And in that way, they're fabulous. But, Those kinds of um, institutions, and criminal um, courts in particular, also are places in which there are, which are filled with silences and violences. And I think that that is incredibly important, but it also can distract us from seeing how ordinary people try to commandeer institutions for themselves. And while I'm not, uh, I don't think I use the word agency once in the book, and it's not necessarily the kind of center point of what I'm doing here. I'm not theorizing about people's subjectivity or agency in some kind of sense about their role to act on history. I do think that civil cases offer us such a fabulous advantage because you're, uh, the, to be a litigant is very rarely something that you must do unless you are compelled by certain circumstances. Uh, Enslaved people's freedom suits, we can talk about whether or not you're compelled to do that or a human being is compelled to do that. Obviously, the stakes are very high. But there is some kind of an act of uh, volition that it takes to enter court to decide along with your legal counsel and the agents who are writing up your cases where your case might be most... Uh, favorably seen. So, asking which kind of jurisdiction or what kind of case it's going to be: Are you going to take it to church court? Are you going to go to the Inquisition? Is this a matter that could be criminal? Are you going to sue for for um, abuse? Are you going to sue for back uh, like restitution? or return of money. Those are all places where I think we can see ordinary people making very clear intellectual and kind of legal cultural decisions. And I think that they've been overlooked, I think, civil cases, because so often they're super boring. Uh, (laughs) In context, we've tended to overthink. They can be, oh, my God. Sometimes the inheritance stuff, you'll be in the middle of a 300-page thing, and you're thinking, why am I spending so much time with this and trying to understand the legal maneuverings? But if we just take a step back, and I really try to do that in the first chapter of the book and say, okay, let's not get into the details Yet, yeah, let's just ask the question about why a person decides to sue, not about the outcome. That really, to me, is just such a, a compelling question. How did they end up in court in the first place?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Yeah, and here I want I want to jump in because I want to flag for our listeners um, the structure of your book, which is divided in two parts, and uh, the first part it's called Suing in the Spanish Empire. And here you devote to the legal and juridical structure of the Spanish Empire. Um, while in the second one, titled Lights from Litigants, you kind of focus on the example of specific litigants, right? In women, mm-hmm. indigenous people, and the enslaved. But going back to that first chapter that I cannot recommend enough to our listeners, whether they're historians by trade or just people that want to understand how the process of history writing works. That I, you know, it's just such an important chapter for historians to read when they're going to, where they're going to go to the archives so they can understand, we can understand as, as historians or as people are interested in history, how history works and how the documents that we see in the archives kind of get crafted and done. And I really appreciated how you kind of, tell us about the materiality of these documents the type of paper how much it cost who wrote it how can you get to the identity of the writers intermediaries what was the role of the of the person that sued in this process so can you tell us about that chapter that you titled agents and powers litigants and writers in the courts like why did you write that chapter and how much work was it because it seemed like a lot of A lot of work. (laughs) A lot of work.
2: It probably was. Yeah. It's like an accumulation of so many questions. And, you know, maybe I'll say it this way. That chapter is such a product of always feeling like I was on the outside looking in, in so many ways. And what I mean by that is that I'm not a, I wasn't trained in law. I never, uh, you know, unlike many legal historians who have JDs, I do not. And I always had the sense that other people understood things about how these cases ended up written the way that they were or who was doing the writing. And I somehow was not clued in. And I'm not really sure. I know I asked a lot of times, you know, who's doing this writing or why isn't this person signing? Because I was, I I noticed that when lawyers, uh, the abogados made their grand arguments, they wrote in the third person and signed their names and they were, You know, characters in the story, but there were all these other pages that just seemed to be in the name of the litigants Mm -hmm. with no identifier for who was doing the writing. And when I would talk to people who I assumed knew the answer, they would kind of say, well, it was the lawyers or the procuradores, Mm -hmm. right, who are the kind of uh, also legal professionals, but do, who don't do the grand legal arguments at the end. And I kept thinking, no, I see those guys show up and put their name on things, too. So this is really strange. Where are these papers coming from? And a lot of my question and my attention to that was formed from the confidence that everyone else knew the answer and I didn't. And I needed to catch up and (laughs) and learn it and figure out, you know, what I had missed in my in my graduate training or along the way. And suddenly, I don't know when it when it occurred to me that none of us knew Mm -hmm. this, that we all assumed that we should know who was doing the writing. Yet there was this mystery there. And I mean, you know, Catherine Burns uh, wrote a great book about notaries um, that came out while I was, um, you know, in the process of writing this book. And that filled in a lot of the a lot of the shadows, but it didn't fill in all of the shadows because she was looking specifically at notaries and and paid a lot of attention to contracts as well as uh, criminal cases. But again, the notaries of court for criminal cases were identified and were the interpolators for people who were actually kind of caught up in a legal system and notaries of the court are not necessarily those who are doing the legal writing in civil cases, which are more litigant driven. So I do hope people will take a look at this because it occurred to me only as I was you know, trying to catch up and fill in in my insecurity what I thought I, I should already know that I realized that I was onto something that we hadn't figured out. And that was really about the role of what we might call the agente. And the agente is just a catch-all term for some semi-official and lots and lots of improvised delegated writers who had familiarity with the forms of litigation and could write petitions for people, but wouldn't sign their names to them. And they kind of worked on a on a um, piecemeal basis, a couple coins, and they would write up a, a, a petition for someone. And they could continue to intervene in disputes, kind of working together with litigants long after official procuradores and abogados, after lawyers were named. So it, that gives us the idea or allows us to see that litigants were involved in their cases oftentimes, especially at the beginning, in very active ways that an emphasis on the delegation of writing and thinking to others might otherwise cover up.
1: Um, yeah, no, I, I have to say, as, a, as someone doing archival work right now, I really appreciated that chapter and no one has explained to me, you know, the type of the documents that I see who wrote them, you know, and the fact that you're kind of right. explaining that and also not only that, but also how did someone, you know, get to ask this agente to write it for them, right? How much they right. likely paid? Um, To what extent were they involved in the process or not? Like all of these things, I think they're super important for historians, but also for people that want to understand how history happened, like how historians also write their histories. Because we go to the archive and we read these documents, and sometimes we're expecting to like, you know, get a, you know, very interesting case, but we're not asking about who is producing it. How is it produced? What That's is, right. you know, the, the, the fact that there has to be a certain quality of paper or depending on, you know, the jurisdiction. I don't know. There were so many things that you kind of helped me understand.
2: Yes. And just, just try to figure out that the filing of those cases and the, even the order that they're put in serves the bureaucracy. And it's not necessarily chronological. It tells you about, this is what the kind of new archival history is doing such a great job of, but it it reproduces a particular kind of logic that makes sense to the court, right? Especially when you're in the archive of the Indies in Sevilla, where I know you are now, a lot of that's done by Mm -hmm. copyists, right? And it almost always is chronologically out of order. It starts at the end with the decision and then circles back. And so chronologically, you're kind of all over the place. It can be very disorienting if you're trying to read uh, a narrative chronologically. But when you break it apart and begin to look at the pieces and the paper and the kind of handwriting and repetition, a lot of times I found that lawyers just repeated what had been written in Mm -hmm. letters that were kind of, we would say, crudely written. Or written by bilingual, um, what, who, from rural, uh, especially indigenous areas. I mean, a lot of the initial petitions are written by bilingual scribes of some nature, whether they're the um, notaries of the indigenous cabildos or other kinds of writers around. And a lot of times, you know, of course, once those things get metabolized into the court system, you get, you know, erudite. And technical uh, writings that begin to kind of churn up the original uh, petitions. But I found just as frequently those early stages, the lawyers are just repeating what the early petitions Mm -hmm. said. So, you know, it really is uh, important to look at the dates and, and ask yourself what kind of handwriting. I'm no handwriting expert, but I spent a lot of time flipping back and forth to see if the handwriting had changed, right? Because, and to try to figure out if the uh, litigant had gone to get another writer, a fourth writer, a fifth writer. And uh, the, I think one of the most amazing things, and I think what really needs to be said, is part of the reason people haven't been asking these questions is not because they're just distracted with other things, but there's a really interesting and still to be explored uh, and really interrogated quality to legal writing in the colonial uh, Spanish empire, in which that whole process of finding agentes and delegating, delegating writing actually gets covered up, which is to say, why is everyone writing in the first person and making it seem as if, let's say someone who was born in Africa and barely speaks any spanish or speaks no spanish at all is writing his own petition in legal language to the courts of uh, the viceregal capital of lima if you read some of these cases they'll have you believe that this litigant came in and you know and there's no trace of who's doing the writing there that there's something literarily and kind of historically significant about the first person in those cases, about the way that the writing itself attaches subjects to their their cases and disappears the legal writer from the whole equation. And I think we still need to do more more work to kind of understand what that means about legal and political subjectivity in the empire.
1: Um, Yeah. And I mean, I think you do a terrific job in like kind of putting this topic. Bringing this topic to the table so other scholars can later on pursue their own questions and kind of tackle these still unknown aspects of legal history. Um, Now, I would like us to move to the second part of your book that, in a way, is kind of the heart of your project, I feel, because it's about the ordinary litigants that you mentioned in the introduction and that are foregrounded in the title of your book. So, you choose three. Uh, Specific kind of groups, women, uh, indigenous people, and the enslaved. And you tell us, you know, in separate chapters, uh, how their civil cases were changing and how different groups of, for example, of women were um, in the late 18th century were like bringing suits against their husbands or partners, how enslaved people were increasingly, you know, Suing the the masters, either you know, for pursuing freedom in certain ways, and how indigenous people also were kind of pushing the courts and the legal system to like hear what they thought they they needed and they they deserved, right? As subjects, mm-hmm. so can you tell us about yeah. all of this example? I know it's like a huge question and half of the book, <laughs> but a little bit right. of how these examples allowed you to show the transformation and how actually they changed, mm-hmm. right? How did women started suing their mm-hmm. husband more and with different types of arguments, how the enslaved did the same, how was freedom, how freedom became this huge thrust of their arguments, et cetera. Right. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes. So I guess I could use, um, an example of a kind of case, um, from each of those, um, subordinated groups, right? The idea here is that statistically speaking, the argument is not that the enlightenment happened in Spanish America solely because of, uh, these cases, nor is the argument that the growth in the really phenomenal growth in the number of civil cases in the second half of the 18th century in almost every court that I looked at, regardless, every civil court, regardless of its level, whether it was a a, a district court or a high court or a city court, whether it was an indige- a highly indigenous uh, area of Oaxaca or a kind of semi provincial place like Trujillo or a viceregal capital, almost everywhere you see this explosion of civil cases in the second half of the 18th century. And the argument is that the enlightenment is part of this, but not that it's constitutive of all of that. Okay. It doesn't explain mm-hmm. everything. Instead, what I'm trying to do is to carve off these cases in which subordinates sue superiors to show that those were rising faster than even the overall explosion of civil cases and that's true in each instance. So in other words if you looked at all of the cases from 1799 in any place it's not going to be that they're all filled with with enslaved people suing masters or women suing their husbands but i can tell you that there are more of those kinds of cases than there would have been been in the courts in 1650 or 1699 right? So what's happening there? What you know i can take a, an example from each one to argue about what's happening in the content of those cases that makes it enlightenment. A good example in the case of women is the cases for what are called alimentos. Mm -hmm. And there you see the way that this project grew out of my prior book on uh, custody cases. Alimentos were were both child support and alimony. Mm -hmm. Well, alimony is a funny thing to have appear in civil cases. Obviously, there were always alimony cases over inheritance that was already part of law. But for the most part, when you saw alimentos until the second half of the 18th century, anywhere in the Spanish empire, it tended to be about inheritance, uh, the the inheritance of uh, bequeathed to someone at the death of someone else, right? It was about property being inherited. And it really changes at the second half of the 18th century where it becomes a lot more about ongoing support for uh, spouses, for wives during separation or really in separation from their marital partners. And it's a a space of law that happens. It's a, a, I'll put it a different way. It moves out the uh, marital disputes outside of the realm of ecclesiastical law, and it makes uh, it has women. What we see are women appearing in court uh, for alimony and for court expenses, for the for legal fees, for even going to court in the first place. Ordinary women suing their husbands, kind of apart from the whole question of whether or not they wanted to divorce mm-hmm. them. And one of the main arguments that they're putting forward in these alimony cases has to do with their natural rights to preserve themselves. So when you begin to scratch away at those arguments, you see connections to all kinds of changes in legal thought over the course of, from you know the late 17th century all the way through, where it's no longer so much about natural law but rather about the natural rights that accrue to individuals as kind of bounded individuals. So that's one kind of way, you know, I I, I look at um, women's cases as revealing something very new, right? It's not just that there are new arguments. These are entirely new kinds of cases in some respects that didn't exist before. In the case of it, I'll be more brief in the other two cases, but In the case of indigenous litigants, you know, indigenous, uh, the indigenous use of Spanish courts of law was always very vibrant and dynamic. But what you find are ordinary uh, indigenous people who are suing the authorities in their villages or uh, communities more vigorously at the end of the 18th century. And they're bringing merit-based arguments, arguments about their kind of suitability to govern in their communities or to be rewarded property based not no longer so much on status and tradition, but rather on their utility to the crown and their uh, uh, skills and ability. And so that kind of dovetails with the emphasis on merit that's happening in the Enlightenment overall. There's lots of temporal arguments in those cases that are really interesting to me, too. And finally, the cases of enslaved litigants. Enslaved litigants, uh, you know, made ample and, and uh, creative use of ecclesiastical courts for a long time. But you see an explosion of civil claims for freedom or about abuse um, in the second half of the 18th century. And those cases are, are, are particularly fascinating. They, they encode all kinds of philosophical debates about human history and freedom.
1: Yeah, and like I cannot recommend enough for for our listeners the chapters because they are like a world in their in in themselves. They kind of get to a yeah. lot of details and a lot of different particular cases that illustrate the argument in very like meaningful ways. So just mm-hmm. um, maybe to finish up, uh, like the discussion about the book, I would like to ask you about how you finished the book, right? Because you finished with the question of uh, why not enlightenment, right? Why, why um, right. if this, you know, history has been, was so important in the 18th century, right? If Spanish Americans produce the enlightenment, why has it been so invisible, this history? Why has it taken so long for historians and, you know, um, Latin Americans to kind of, think of this period and these kind of subjects as producers of enlightenment? Well, you know, it's so funny because I kind of was thinking about this when I was talking
2: about not being a a lawyer or not having a JD. And my assumption always that other people understood something that I wasn't understanding. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it could be in part not having a JD Maybe assuming that I was missing some kind of subtleties in the cases that had to do with language. You know, I'm not a native Spanish speaker. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I'm pretty good with the, you know, with the 17th and 18th century stuff. But these kind of, I want to actually just call forward this notion of kind of the, of what it is to assume that something exists elsewhere or is established elsewhere. And that there is a, th- that what you're doing is playing catch up or you're missing it. Right. Mm-hmm. In that respect, I think that there is an analogy to be made to the longer history of Latin America's place in world history. Mm-hmm. And I think the analogy that I want to make, like why not enlightenment is, how, you know, how did we miss this? Well, the answer is to be found kind of in that sense of uh, insecurity and in that sense that there's like an authentic Latin American history that should not connect essentially to these imposed Western civ kinds of themes, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that happened, that happens not only in the way that we frame Latin American history now, but it also was part of the way that. The, I would argue the kind of really disruptive potential of these court cases at the moment was diffused by defendants, and so explain what I mean, kind of in both uh, in both registers. Now we are at a place where Latin America offers what um, one historian of Argentina uh, referred to as kind of the endless search for the um, for the autochthonous originality, right? what is really Latin American? There seems like something capitulatory, something disappointing, or something uh, politically conservative and uh, in in the worst way and wrong with saying that Latin America uh, should contribute to these major themes of world history and have been uh, progenitors of ideas like enlightenment because it reverses where we've been uh, you know, for almost, uh, you know, half a century in talking about Latin America as having value in and of itself and not in reference to the West or Europe, right? So that uh, the study of uh, native languages or other knowledges, I mean, even thinking about what uh, Lasa in Lima, I guess that would have been 2017, uh, Latin American Studies Association other saberes right no the other knowledges this is absolutely important it's a huge part of what i do but it also kind of tells us what direction that the the valuing of latin america's other knowledges the ones that don't connect to or that explode western categories are the ones right now that are valorized Mm -hmm. so there's something kind of uncomfortable and obviously problematic about arguing that Latin America contributed to the enlightenment and that ordinary people were contributing to the enlightenment because it seems like all it does is reinforce, as you quoted before the idea that for Latin America to be important, it has to link into Western ideas. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I I struggled with that a lot in writing the book. Um, How do we uh, kind of acknowledge that Latin America was a site of generative ideas that got taken up and trademarked by the West. And I think that's right there the, the uh the trick. Uh, I'm not the first, obviously, to make these kinds of arguments. I mean, everyone uh, who you know should read Michel Rolf Trujillo and others who have talked about the trademarking of the experience of places in Latin America and the Caribbean as you know part of uh, European history. But I think that that there's the trick is kind of embedded right in the history, which is to say that very, very almost simultaneous with the rise of these kinds of cases, you see the defendants. Slave owners, husbands, caciques or members of cabildos in um, indigenous communities, very quickly adopting many of the same ontological markers of the Enlightenment that litigants were Mm -hmm. and flipping them around and actually emphasizing certain of the elements that would lead them, lead us to imagine that the ideas that litigants were generating were mimicry or were given to them by others that they were uh, that they weren't really their ideas. So the question, who was doing the writing, becomes a loaded question in which it implies that because ordinary Latin Americans were not doing their own writing, they weren't doing their own thinking or their own legal arguing. And I really want us to. Interrogate that assumption. Why is it that we assume that slave owner or a uh, philosoph in a cafe in Paris was the, the originator of his own ideas, but are so much less comfortable with imagining that an enslaved uh, mother or a indigenous person who could not write would be the originator of their own ideas? And I think that's the legacy of this very trick of the Enlightenment, disabusing the, the intellectual history of ordinary people is really a, a kind of a very um, enlightened move on the part of the defendants.
1: Thank you. I mean, thank you for that intervention. I think it's so thought provoking, and I think we really have to sit down with your book and kind of think through this very complex idea because I, I do believe it's like a huge question for for both people studying Latin America for Latin American themselves. Um, so I I really appreciated that 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 way of finishing your book. Um, as I mentioned to you in our conversation, I've kind of want to implement a new type of question here in the New Books Network and I would like to ask you and that I think may be related to what you just said but we'll see what you think how does your book do you think how does this history you're telling us relates to the present how does this story you're telling us kind of help us understand or not our current moment Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, our current
2: moment is um, moving really fast. <laughs> Which yeah. is to say, I mean, the things that I was thinking about as I was struggling and, you know, had sleepless nights about the um, implications of this book mm-hmm. uh, have changed really fast. And I, I, I think it's fair to say that like many um, people at this very juncture historically, uh, you know the ground is is shifting so fast. I'm not sure I have it all worked out, but I can't. Yeah, you know, in that in that in the respect that I mean, uh, I think that it. I had a, a a kind of conviction that I had settled on when I was writing this book, and I'll be really clear about what I mean about that, mm-hmm. which is that I think that there's two scales. One was the historiographical scale that I was just talking about. What does it mean after you know several decades of postcolonial scholarship? to uh, return to the question of other knowledges and say, hey, they're not so other. They're, in fact, talking in many of the same languages as everyone else in the West was, of course, uh, you know, produced in very local and individually meaningful circumstances. Mm -hmm. But that's been written out of the history, right? And what do we do with the fact that we have all of these litigants who were perfectly comfortable kind of engaging with ideas that we could very easily label in, as enlightened, yet nobody has ever wanted to do that. Both the, de, you know, the defendants in the moment up to us today have decided that that's not what their value is, right? That was a question that I really struggled with. And I came to a certain kind of set of, um, of convictions about that, that it was an important story to tell. So that we could kind of uh, revivify that conversation, so that other knowledges were not just valued, uh, you know, uh, kind of unthinkingly. So that w- we are sure to be able to look at the whole uh, range of the kinds of knowledges that Latin Americans were producing, and not simply always exoticize and uh, and, and 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 you know fixate all the time on those that somehow are not resonant with larger Western uh, categories or, or, or ontologies that really seemed healthy to me at that moment. Mm-hmm. And Part of the other, there was like the other scale was more a popular knowledge scale or popular history. Mm-hmm. I would kind of get caught up in the politics of all of that. What does it mean to be, you know, am I just simply, re- you know, kind of reinscribing Western categories and Western mm-hmm. textbooks and, oh my God, what am I doing here? And, the, but then I would kind of comfort myself and say, you know, Bianca, ordinary folks today who know about history don't know anything except that they think that the Enlightenment is what led to anti-monarchical revolution mm-hmm. and democracy. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, period. So just the mere fact that you're kind of opening people up to the idea that it was produced by ordinary people and not by some small number of, you know, Thomas Paine's and, you know, uh, you know whether or not you count Rousseau or, you know, Kant right? Just that alone has to be valuable. I, that, that to me felt really important. Like that, just the, uh, the assertion that, you know, ordinary people really were producing the ideas that we have now, again, trademarked to only a few Mm -hmm. and that you too can be part of the intellectual history in, in every, in these small ways, um, that intellectual history and the place that we go to that the places that we go to are influenced by everyday action and that ordinary people no matter how educated or how fluent in speaking to the paradigm that they live in actually have intellectual histories to me seemed really important and it still does but i have to say the last couple of years since this book was produced has made me, I, I you know, this. I was doing the copy the edits for this book exactly at around the 2016 US election and looking at what's been happening in Brazil, thinking about what's been happening throughout Latin America, thinking about how we imagine people, uh, I think that there is also something fundamentally important about this being a global story and not one that is about otherness necessarily at this moment. I think that uh, the idea that we have uh, any kind of shared history it, it can it, it is, is important. It's an important counter narrative. I think we have to s- grapple right now with the potential abuse of the idea that we are um, producing um our own histories or Latin America produces a history that's somehow disconnected it that's written into the idea of otros saberes mm-hmm. we we need to be able to toggle between our shared hum, human values and our shared human story
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the and our otherness in ways that are productive because if we don't there are plenty of thinkers in our world today who are, are heavily invested in the differences in our stories and not their similarity.
1: I mean, that's so interesting. And I really appreciate it that you take the time to think this question because I know sometimes historians, we as historians are more comfortable about commenting about the past. And it's a little bit more difficult in in, in this kind of context mm-hmm. to comment on the present. And I think what you just said will give our listeners a lot to think about so just to very quickly finish off can you tell us what you're working on right now and what are we uh, expecting from you in the next few years
2: well, I am returning to the history of childhood, which uh, was part of the first book, but uh, and I'm actually moving to the 20th century for a little while, mm-hmm. and I'm um, doing some work on girlhood, on uh, puberty, on medicine, on medical ethics, all kinds of things like that, which uh, you know are new to me and are going to be quite challenging. And working, um, <laughs> speaking of um, of. Uh, you know, uh, of sources and, you know, asking what you know and don't know, you know, working in, in a period that has photographs is just completely blowing my mind. And it, I feel like, uh, you know, it's a totally different discipline. It's not even history <laughs> anymore, but I continue, I continue to work any readers who are interested in the enlightenment on trial law uh, 18th century Spanish America, you know, there's so many, un. um, unresolved mm-hmm. uh, pieces or, um, you know, great, uh, uh, you know, places that I, I can burrow down. I um, am working right now on a reflection about uh, the importance of age as a legal category, as a legal mm-hmm. argument, really, that um, it, during precisely this period and about those corporate identities and justice oriented practice and, you know, how a lot of times when we think about age, and the history of age, we actually are kind of secretly thinking about citizenship. And I am writing something about how to read legal documents for age in the past when citizenship was not on the the agenda, right? What do we do with all of this justice-based world in which it was really actually advantageous for an adult person to talk about being a minor, or being an orphan, or being unprotected, desamparado, right? You know, it seems to us to almost be so kind of um, capitulatory and regressive, and it must be the uh, product of infantilizing discourses on a part of the colonial state. But I think it's actually probably a lot more complicated than that. I'm also very interested and uh, have um, uh, I hope to publish on the uh, something that didn't come up in the book, but that I think I might have been, uh, you know, kind of secretly working around, which is the relationship between a lot of this argumentation and capitalism. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, there's especially with this, a lot of these enslaved cases, but the idea of speculation, mm-hmm. speculation in mm-hmm. prices, and what that means temporally. Uh, was really embedded in a lot of these cases, you know, and so I, you know, I've tried to carve that off and force myself (laughs) to uh, speak to the history of um, the development of capitalism. I think that um, a lot of these litigants were making market um, arguments Mm -hmm. and advancing the idea of a kind of unbiased market that could operate outside of the logic of old casuistic justice and uh, in doing so, you know, like we always are probably making their own beds for the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, that may in just as much as they created the enlightenment, they may have had a hand in creating um, some of the capitalist uh, logic that that we inherit today.
1: Well, I'm very looking forward to all of those projects, and I know we'll be hearing much more about you in the next few years. So thank you very much for joining us today. And this was a terrific interview.
2: Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for your questions and for engaging with my work. I really appreciate it.